Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Napoleonicist. I've got another fun one lined up for you this week as Napoleon Month continues. I'm joined by Dr Will Fletcher, lecturer at King's College London, who some of you will remember joined me to discuss the staff work that made the Waterloo campaign unfold in the way that it did. Considering that this period is called the Napoleonic Wars, it seemed appropriate to look at how Napoleon waged war, so I thought it would be great to have him back for a chat. Will, how have you been doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Um, yeah, all very good. Busy and stuck in lockdown, but uh, trying to make the most of it and getting on with some work. So yeah, pleased to be on today um, talking about all things Napoleon. Oh, it's great to have you back. There's one thing that we should probably get out of the way just to start off with, um, to clear up any biases that uh, people may be concerned about. What's your stance on Napoleon as a person, first of all? Um, yeah, obviously, very contentious issue and see lots of... Uh, comments online and stuff and a very two-sided argument in terms of like him or hate him. Um, I mean, there's certainly many good points to Napoleon, um, which I sort of fully acknowledge um, in terms of, I mean, for a start, he gave his name to the era and the Napoleonic Wars, and he is the key personality to um, the period we're discussing, um, as well as various social reforms, um, and you know, across France, which still are relevant today. And I think and those combined with his sort of first specific military aspects and um, being inspirational leader, um, his sort of intellectual capacity as a military commander um, were good and he was a good tactician, but at the end of the day, a poor grand strategist. And then when you add on to that, his sort of various atrocities that he um, was responsible for and um, being a warmonger, which is certainly true in my eyes. Um, I think, yeah, to offer sort of, conclusion to that but there are various good points in but at the end of the day I'm probably anti-Napoleon in terms of what he did in terms of uh, disturbing peace world peace um yeah I think that's my my stance on Napoleon 
I think we need to come back to that warmonger comment because it's one of those ones that people are going to be either sort of sucking their their teeth going not sure about that but or, or they're they're completely with you but so we'll we'll come back to that but first let's kind of talk about Napoleon's style first of all what do people generally refer to as Napoleon's kind of way of waging war when it comes to tactics and strategy yeah no interesting question and obviously tactics and strategy sort of two um, fairly different elements there um I mean I think one of the key things going through both of those is Napoleon's decisive nature and his ideas about finding the decisive point whether it's tactically on the battlefield or strategically um, on a campaign in terms of military strategy um, and you know cre creating a decisive battle um, as a sort of climax of the campaign was his key sort of way of waging war um, I think you know that that was a good way of doing it but his ultimately the bigger picture side of things the grand strategy was where he, he fell down um and that was where you know his more positive things of finding the decisive point and all various aspects that we'll come on to in more detail about um how he actually executed that um are interesting but the actual bigger picture is where he sort of fell down in my view and in terms of that bigger picture i'm guessing you're referring to things like russia 1812 kind of mm. being sucked in, I don't want to speak for you here, but that certainly strikes me as one of the most obvious points where the grand strategy just fell apart in terms of allowing himself to be sucked in in that pursuit of that overwhelming victory. Yeah, um, I think in terms of military strategy in that sense, uh, Russia is a difficult one as well as the Peninsula War, doesn't go very well there. Um, but more, I think more interestingly also is um, the sort of very Clausewitzian idea of war being continuation of politics or policy by other means that Napoleon sort of fails to understand what the consequences of his actions are going to be. So whether that's, you know, 1805 or 1806, um, yeah, he does win these great military victories, but they then have consequences later on, um, you know, most notably Prussia after 1806, that really sort of ignites the whole um, tension between Prussia and France again, and, you know, comes back to bite him in 1813 and, you know, to 1815. And then you know a century beyond that for Germany and France. Um, so I don't think he really understands the sort of how warfare can then translate into politics or policy after that. And I think that's where he sort of fails. Even though if you take his military campaigns in isolation without looking at the consequences, um, I think he is a great sort of military strategist, just a poor grand strategist. Yeah, I'm with you. And and that lingering lingering resentment is certainly. A, a huge issue um, in terms of that debate about whether or not Napoleon knew whether to kind of limit himself um, in in the right instances. I mean, it was interesting talking to Jack Gill a couple of weeks ago now about the Battle of Znaim and the aftermath of the 1809 campaign, where he argues that Napoleon was quite kind of restrained in the sense that he didn't dismember the Austrian Empire as he perhaps had the opportunity to. So for you, do you think it's a case of opportunism that drives that inclination to either take nations apart and really exert the pressure when it comes to the peace negotiations or do you think it's a case of, of something a little bit more um kind of planned out um yeah i mean there's a degree of opportunism and i mean the problem is he gets himself into this whole cycle of war sort of feeding war um and needing victories you know fund his fund his nation, you know, as head of, head of the nation, um, 
he needs sort of income and war helps with that and also just to reinforce his own power and legitimacy he has to sort of keep fighting in order to reinforce that and keep his followers um and sort of show that he's actually achieving things and i think once he gets into that cycle um very much sort of when we move into the napoleonic wars in, in the early period of the french revolutionary wars he's sort of yeah he is personally driven but he's at least part of a bigger idea about the french revolution whereas when he crowns himself emperor and you know he switched to the napoleonic wars he's then in even more of a mess in terms of you know how what's the end game here in terms of <laughs> what what what's he actually going to settle for and i think um he gets himself into an impossible situation of needing to keep fighting campaigns just for his own sake um which is really leads to his downfall in the end and how does what napoleon does tactically compare to what other nations are doing at the time because part of the reason that napoleon was so successful at least initially was that to some extent what he was doing was a break from the norm right mm -hmm. um yes and i think it's important to obviously remember that what napoleon was doing was often sort of taking others ideas and then sort of executing them particularly well um which i know is um various people do hold that view as well um but he was particularly good at doing that and waging war um and he did essentially move away from the limited warfare that we see in the previous century um, as well as other commanders of the period um you know using mass armies and the levy on mass obviously helping france in general with that but then napoleon sort of using that on campaign um rapid movement and um concentration for battle at a decisive point and um, he all executed those very well and in a certain way he did revolutionize and um, the way wars were fought um i think you know and it emphasized various different campaigns um, where he did that um, most notably i think the sort of Ulm and then Auschwitz campaign and then the Jena Auschwitz campaign um, against various enemies and executed those very well. Um, so yeah, he, he was a break from the norm um, in that sense. I really like what you mentioned there about how quite often it's not necessarily that Napoleon is the innovator, but actually that he's picking up on advances that other people have brought to the fore. And the one that really strikes me here is the credit that he gets as um, the instigator of the core system. And obviously he was instrumental in kind of making sure that that was implemented across the French army, but it wasn't his idea. It goes back uh, earlier to, is it Vauban? Who's, yeah, yeah. who's I mean, I was going to say that the core system in general as well, I think has a lot more credit given to Napoleon and the, even the French than really is particularly due in terms of, that's really a name for the breakdown of you know, a military formation of all arms, um, which isn't particularly something that's that new. Um, you know, you often have, even if they've got different names, you often have columns or whatever it might be um, being used sort of together, um, but capable of acting alone. And I think um, the idea that the core system was set up by Napoleon um, is obviously flawed, but he was particularly good at using um, sort of these all armed formations, um, which is where he sort of came into his own. Yeah, I've just realised that I said it was Vauban, and it wasn't, was it? It was Guibert and Borsay, who, who was reading at military college, who then kind of influenced his thinking. Take people through how Napoleon used the core concept, though, just in case they're not familiar. Yeah, so the core concept really is um, having formations of all arms, so infantry, cavalry and artillery of about 20 to 30,000 men in total. Um, but the key point was that they were self-sufficient. So 
um, logistically, for example, they would be, they could rely on themselves um, and their command and staff system meant that the Corps was the key um, level of war where the commander, normally a marshal in the French case, um, commanded um, the Corps and he had a staff that were able to, you know, function independently of, of an, a larger army headquarters. Um, and the key thing was they were usually kept at one day's distance march from each other. Um, this meant that they had the clear advantage of being able to live off the land as the French often did. So they could be dispersed um, and equally the intent of a particular move, um, say east across Europe would be difficult to locate where the um, exact objective would be until they actually concentrated for battle. Um, so the core system really worked well and also um, the idea that a corps could fight an independent battle was the key thing. So if a corps was um, came into contact with the enemy, the idea was that having infantry, cavalry and artillery, um, that they could fight their own um, battle rather than having to rely on, you know, cavalry from a army level formation that would have to come and help out. Um, so that was really the idea that um, corps could fight their own um, battle in detail rather than having to rely on the larger army. And then Napoleon could sort of use these corps to outmaneuver the enemy was um, what he was so good at doing. And there were a few instances where that kind of happened, weren't there, where a corps would kind of make first contact and that kind of became almost like sort of one of the strings of a spider's web. The other corps would kind of concentrate in on a force yeah. whilst one corps kind of or, or two uh, kind of held its own against initially a larger force and, and then others kind of come in from different angles. Yes, yeah, exactly. So there's notable um, occasions where he used it to sort of um, outmaneuver the enemy. Um, obviously Ulm trapping the Austrians around Ulm, that was key. And then I think my personal favourite or, you know, most um, interesting study is really the Jena-Austad um, example where the, the twin battles are happening um, and Napoleon manages to hold um, the Prussians at one whilst defeating them at Jena. And then that basically sums up the, the end of the campaign because even though it's a smaller force at Jena that's defeated, and the campaign is sort of won by the time um, those two battles have concluded. And that's all from the core system where first they've moved east and the Prussians aren't quite sure where they're coming from. And then secondly, swinging down um, to entrap them uh, and, you know, for cause to fight Savu to fight his own um, battle. Alstad means that, um, yeah, Napoleon's free to crush the Prussians at Jena. So I think, yeah, using the core system is is a real key aspect of Napoleon's um, success as a military commander. I mean, it's quite characteristic of his style, isn't it? That ability to kind of manoeuvre, pivot, strike, pivot again and strike again. Um, and you see that even as late as 1814. Um, and, and in fact, I'd say that the one thing that's remarkable about the 1815 campaign, and please do disagree with me um, if, if you're inclined to here, is that there isn't such a reliance on maneuver it's a kind of straight down the middle um philosophy and the reason that that works so well is sort of that you're the allies are kind of expecting something a bit fancier in terms of maneuver mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think with the 1815 campaign the the idea is sort of there <laughs> in terms of holding off one and then concentrating on the other and he sort of switches between whether that's the prussians or wellington's army um so the idea is there but i think what goes wrong is just the execution is just completely disastrous um, at multiple points during those four days. So 
Um, yeah, I think he kind of had the idea of doing that clearly, um, but it just went disastrously wrong. And, you know, probably the Allies thought, you know, were surprised of how he didn't manage to manoeuvre his um, corps more effectively to actually crush them, you know, whether that's at um, Catrebra, um or Waterloo, I think, you know, from Wellington's point of view, he kind of got off lightly in, on, on those by the fact that more reinforcements didn't come in, come in during the crucial points during those battles, which in Napoleon's sort of heyday, or more to the point, probably Napoleon's staff's heyday, um, they would have been coordinated to do, which I think um, would have been an interesting um, change of events if that had actually happened. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The Napoleon of 1815 was nowhere near, or at least the Napoleonic army of 1815 was, you know, it's not even comparable to the sort of thing that we see at Auschwitz or, or Jena um, in terms of partly the plan, in, in my opinion, um, but particularly in terms of what you're saying about manoeuvre and kind of a, a really clever positioning of forces to be able to sort of ensnare an enemy and annihilate them. We should stay with uh, with leadership for the moment. What's what's Napoleon like as a commander of an army? Yeah, I mean, as a commander, I mean, in sort of modern terminology, there's various different elements to that in terms of commander, in terms of general commanding, but also the leadership side and the management side. Um, so command leadership and management. And I think um, Napoleon's good and supported well in different parts of those um, aspects. I mean, the management side is clearly his staff, which is good. Um, as a leader, I think, I'd say that's his sort of strongest point. Um, he's a very good leader um, and very inspirational leader. And then overall as a commander, I think his key thing is being decisive, as I mentioned before, um, which is a key um, asset of his, which other commanders often during the period lacked um, and sort of having clarity of thought of what the best um, you know, best way to proceed was um, Napoleon was particularly good at having giving clear direction. Um, and like we said about using his core, for example, where the decisive point to concentrate would be. And be yeah, as a leader, sort of charismatic, um, inspiring and sort of very sort of romantic idea of a, a military hero. I think Napoleon sort of encapsulated that, um, which were in those days of warfare sort of key attributes really for commanders to, to have. Um, on a battlefield where sort of personalities were so important um, during the actual fighting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that always strikes me about 1815 is the lack of his first choice, if you like, of chief of staff. Mm -hmm. um, and the impact that has because Berthier had that ability to kind of take Napoleon's thoughts and translate them into orders that were then kind of intelligible, if you like, which therefore meant that the lack of Berthier presented a problem uh, when it came to the Waterloo campaign. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, obviously, I'm fairly biased in this because of my research into stuff, but um, the lack of Berthier um, not being there when he'd been with Napoleon all the way through from, you know, Italy onwards, uh, in my view, is, is the absolutely key issue with um, the Waterloo campaign. I mean, there are, there are obviously bigger problems and Napoleon would have probably lost anyway, but, you know, the fact of the sort of grand tactics on the, the four days of um, the campaign was actually happening, I think would have unfolded a lot differently if Bertie had been there and Salt um, proved to be fair, in, you know, just, he wasn't inadequate, he just wasn't trained for that position. <laughs> and so I think it was just a fundamental sort of mismanagement of um, who could they have in that position. But I mean, 
anyone replacing Bertier would have struggled because Bertier had been sort of monopoly on that position. Um, and the fact of not having sort of um, other people able to step into that so easily was, was really the undoing of um, of the campaign, in my view. And how does he treat his kind of more immediate subordinates, uh, Bertier aside from him, so his, his marshals, his generals and, and other staff members, on a kind of an interpersonal level, what's he like to work with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with this, there's sort of two levels to look at here. Um, firstly, more when he's on campaign in, in the same theatre as Marshall's. Um, so, you know, whether that is the Jena Auschstadt example or, you know, whichever campaign he's fighting on. Um, unlike in, say, the Waterloo film where he's very sort of argumentative and um, disagreeing with his Marshall's, um, I'd sort of say that's obviously by Waterloo, it's a bit of a different relationship, but on the whole, when he, he, he obviously does have, um, he's very authoritarian and dictatorial, but he is working with his marshals on a campaign and there is a certain degree of, you know, them um, working for him and getting on with him and, you know, they're his marshals and they sort of have kind of mutual respect for each other and he entrusts them with, you know, cause to command and there's no way that him as a single person was able to sort of control that size of army and disperse nature. So he did have to, have a certain degree of trust um, in his marshals and sort of get along with them and um, show them that he trusted them. Then on a sort of bigger level, um, obviously being a sort of head of the state that he was, that he really struggled in that sense. I mean, as we sort of know with the Peninsula War, trying to sort of micromanage his marshals and being completely out of touch with the situation on the ground, just not only because he didn't understand, but also just the time scale of transmitting orders from wherever he was in Europe to um, Spain and Portugal, um, he sort of really didn't manage to deal very well with his subordinates in that case and also the satellite states that he created I think um, he had a lot of sort of friction between those and trying to get them to do what he wanted so as a sort of statesman dealing with his marshals or military commanders he struggled whereas as a military general um, in a specific theatre I think um, he had a lot, it was a lot more sort of workable relationship. Well, well, let's kind of stay with that sort of statesman concept for a moment, because you touched earlier on the whole kind of warmonger argument mm -hmm. and the extent to which Napoleon may or may not have been a man of peace, which, you know, I've offered my thoughts on, so I'll keep quiet for the moment. But you're a sceptic in, in the sense of Napoleon um, being anything other than a warmonger. Um, I, th I mean, there's... There's definitely two sides to the argument, and I, I mean, that's why it's such a rich debate. Um, and at the end of the day, there's various aspects, you know, when we look at his sort of reform of France socially and politically, um, you know, whether that's his legal, um, you know, the Code Napoleon or religious tolerance, um, all sorts of things like that are, you know, he's clearly got, it's not all just about creating war for the sake of it, and he doesn't care about anything else. So there is clearly the idea that he wants to, um, you know, take on the ideas from the French Revolution, sort of mould them to his own thing, but at the end of the day, make France a great, you know, nation state. Um, so it's not all just about him personally just wanting to create war. Um, and there are those other bits. But I mean, if you're looking at it very cynically, those sort of come back to the fact that he's trying to cling to power and wants to sort of, you know, I think glory is the key word with Napoleon. He wants to sort of achieve glory, you know, looking back to you know, Caesar and all, all these, the great captains of history, he wants to sort of add his name to that list. And I think 
at the end of the day, he is a warmonger because of A, the situation he gets himself into, which um, I was explaining earlier, and then B, he, his own sort of ideas or his sort of limitless ambition is also kind of his undoing on a, on a personal level. He just wants as much glory as he can sort of obtain. So I think it's difficult really to argue that he wasn't anything other than a warmonger because, you know, even he would probably, you know, I know he said that he wanted peace a number of times, but that was very much to sort of consolidate his position. And I think even he wouldn't that reluctantly, um, you know, disagree with the idea that he wanted war in terms of for the glory of France or glory of himself. So I think um, it's difficult to argue he wasn't a, a warmonger. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to that whole kind of notion of glory and, and the extent to which he kind of felt that after a certain point, his glory and France's glory were sort of the same kind of thing. Mm, yeah, now, and it's interesting the transition between the French Revolution and then Napoleon coming to power because, again, there are certain positive aspects. Um, you know, the regime is certainly a lot less radical than the French Revolution had been, you know, the the cult of the supreme being or the sort of you know the 10-day week all the all these various fairly or you know year, year zero again and yeah all these fairly radical changes napoleon does at the end of the day take a, a less radical viewpoint and sort of take the takes the idea of the french revolution onwards and sort of molds it in his own way um but yeah at the end of the day he is sort of looking for his own glory in the glory of france which is where the warmongering sort of comes in yeah, I mean, the other point about him is that he's very good at waging war. Um, so the idea that he wouldn't be up for going to war if that kind of furthered his ends is is kind of something that I'm, I always struggle to uh, get my yes. head around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is, again, one of the problems that he wouldn't necessarily admit that he wasn't a great statesman, as I was saying about the, what are you actually conducting war to achieve? I think part of the issue is he wouldn't really acknowledge the fact that he wasn't you know achieving things because he saw himself as defeating the Prussians or the Austrians or you know whoever it might be because um as you say he was very good at doing that as a military commander and then translating that into the bigger grand strategy pictures where he fell down and I think he didn't sort of realize that actually he wasn't very good at doing that <laughs> but he, he did he did like the fact that he was very good as a military commander um you know, in, in isolation as a military commander, he is very good. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the key point there. And thinking about downfall, downfall of Napoleon, it's often said, and I am generalising a bit here, that in effect the Allies defeated Napoleon because they learnt to fight like him. Do you think there's truth in that? Because, I mean, I can only base this on my own research, but certainly from the British side, it sort of feels like they just keep on doing what they're doing throughout the Peninsula War, but the Prussians and the Austrians, they do change their style. So what's your kind of sense of that? Yeah, um, difficult question in terms of um, the levels of, sort of war you're talking about. I mean, tactically, for example, um, on the battlefield, the British, as you say, they keep doing what they're doing so well in the Peninsula, um, sort of whole line versus column debate, use of skirmishes, artillery, um, firing against infantry rather than counter-battery fire. Um, all these things the British do really well and keep to their own system rather than adapting to well, the French system. Um, and similarly, not raise, raising large system armies, um, but the whole British um, practice obviously trying to encourage coalition warfare and relying on other sort of manpower from elsewhere in Europe. Um, so in that sense, I definitely think, yeah, there is the British keep doing what they're doing, the French um, 
do what they're doing. Um, but in terms of more at the sort of military strategic level, um, Wellington in the peninsula by sort of 1812, 1813, for the 1813 campaign really, starts to fight much more sort of Napoleonic style warfare in terms of trying to create a decisive battle. I mean, Salamanca in 1812 achieves it to a certain degree. Evelyn obviously has to retreat, um, but then, you know, the advance up to Victoria and the sort of campaign on after that is very much Nepo um, Wellington trying to fight more Napoleonic style warfare in terms of the decisive battle. Um, the key change being that Wellington has the resources to do that um, until the sort of Spanish support after Salamanca, you know, politically to allow him to command their army and more reinforcements from Britain. Um, yeah, Wellington is just not in a position to fight Napoleonic style decisive, um, you know, campaigns that have a decisive battle as the climax. So, um, to a certain degree, I think um, Wellington does also adapt, like as you say, the the Allies in the rest of Europe do. Um, Leipzig, Leipzig being sort of key example there, where they all eventually have raised citizen armies and sort of come down to crush Napoleon at his own game, so to speak. Um, and yes, yeah, so Wellington sort of does do this by 1813 to a certain degree, but tactically not. Um, 100 Days campaign again, Wellington um, is kind of on the defensive a bit like some of his Peninsula War campaigns. Um, so in that sense, um, he is sort of fighting more his traditional um, way of fighting, but again, waiting for the mass of troops to come um, from elsewhere in Europe. So um, in a way, they're sort of trying to fight a Napoleon style war, but hasn't, they haven't quite got the resources yet to do that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, we have to talk about posterity as well, don't we? Because the term genius gets bandied around quite a mm. lot. Do you feel that that applies to Napoleon? Um, as we were saying earlier, I think some of the ideas and the execution of, you know, for example, uh, his manoeuvrist approach and forcing a decisive battle, um, you know, you could you could call him a genius in that sense. And he did sort of show what was possible, um, you know, and even up till today, um, Napoleon is still studied by militaries in terms of manoeuvre warfare, that might translate into armoured warfare, but it's still the same sort of principles. Um, so I think Napoleon did revolutionise um, some of how warfare was fought, but it was, a, it came at a great cost, um, especially towards the end, um, you know, 1809, Wagram saw 30,000 casualties, Borodino another 30,000, you know, Waterloo, 25,000, yeah, the cost of which these victories that start to become um, apparent means that, you know, his genius maybe isn't as great as some has made out because, um, you know, yes, he's winning, but at a great cost. So in that sense, it's difficult. Um, also, in, in, in a broader side of things, there are various sort of areas of the sort of the nature of war that Napoleon fails to understand, um, you know, either in certain theatres, say the Peninsula War, or the miscalculation with invading Russia in 1812 and fundamentally miscalculates things there. Uh, similarly, as sort of head of state, the naval aspect or maritime strategy, um, he completely fails to understand that or overcome that. And I think the biggest one is probably failing to understand or failing to get on top of this idea of coalition war being fought against him. And everything he does kind of backfires because the more he sort of takes out individual countries, the more they then group together to fight against him. So um, he kind of misunderstands the nature of war and what he's 
you know, as I was saying before, he's trying to actually achieve after he's won the sort of military victory, um, you know, what actually what actually is going to happen then. And I think that's that takes away from him being a military genius, really. Yeah, that's sort of feeding the resentment of other nations, which then in turn feeds the coalitions and, and means that more nations are inclined to band together. And I think that's a powerful argument. Tell us a little bit about his kind of his legacy um, strategically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think his legacy um, is, again, this sort of manoeuvrist approach and understanding uh, military problems and making decisive um, decisions and courses of action. Um, so I think that's a key part of his legacy. Um, I think as a military leader, that's something that can often um, be overshadowed by other, you know, bad things than Napoleon did. But as a military leader, I think he was very inspirational, charismatic, um, and various examples in terms of, you know, whether it's all the stories of him sort of grabbing soldiers by the ear and sort of talking to them or, you know, presenting legions of honour, um, orders of the day, etc. the Arc de Triomphe after Hauslitz, all these sort of things really are good, are a good legacy on how military commanders can inspire their troops, which not just in the Napoleonic Wars, where it is particularly important, but also, you know, right up until today, being inspired and wanting to follow um, your commander is a sort of key aspect of warfare. And I think Napoleon, Napoleon's legacy as a military leader is very impressive in that sense. Um, as I say, taking away from the sort of more political, warmongering side of things. Um, so the, the leadership side with the manoeuvrist approach to war, um, I think are two key like legacies that um, Napoleon has left, um, which are, you know, fundamental to the war right up until today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a difficult question, but bearing in mind everything that you've said, what do you therefore think is his most impressive campaign? Mm -hmm. um, it's a difficult one. I was, yeah, I would, I would probably say if you took away what, what happened later on, the Jena-Rausstadt campaign, in my view, is the most impressive in terms of if you take it in isolation as a military campaign and don't look at what happened afterwards and the political consequences of that, Jena Alstad, um, for me, is the most impressive campaign because of the sort of manoeuvre that gets him into that position um, to defeat the Austrian, um, Prussian, sorry, so decisively. Um, but, you know, I keep coming back to this old Clausewitz idea of politics by the means, which being a good war studies student, we're always sort of encouraged to do. Um, I think if you accept that is the key thing that you're trying to achieve during war, you then have to sort of rewind really to his Italy campaign, um, starting in 1796, um, because he is actually acting more as a military general in isolation rather than the head of state as well. And so because of that, he can then fight the campaign more just as a military commander. I know it has political ramifications, but it's more limited in what he's trying to do in the, in the, bigger side of things. So um, I'd probably say the Italy campaign because it helps to end the first war, the first coalition and sort of reinforce the ideas um, that the French Revolution was trying to export. And in that sense, um, at least it was limited to that. Whereas Jena Auerstadt um, 1806 campaign against the Prussians is very good, but ends up being disastrous for him in the long run and France in the long run. <laughs> Yeah, there's a sort of, I mean, I'm reluctant to call it a butterfly effect from Jena Auerstadt because it's far more cataclysmic than a butterfly effect. But yeah, you're, you're, I think that's a, a really fair comment um, in terms of, of legacy. 
One final question to wrap this up then. We talked earlier about Napoleon kind of wanting to achieve a glory perhaps on a par with Caesar or Alexander the Great. Certainly he kind of idolized those when those figures when he was studying at military college. Where do you think he actually sits amongst history's all-time great commanders? Yeah, um, I think as a sort of military commander in isolation or military general, um, he was a great military commander and you could add him to the list of great military commanders because he sort of revolutionised um, how you could fight wars with mass citizen armies and this whole sort of manoeuvrist approach, which, as, as was alluded to earlier, many other countries then had to um, emulate to try and overcome uh, the French, including, as I say, Wellington to a certain degree, having to fight decisive battles um, was exactly the same as what Napoleon was trying to do by the end. Um, and as we said, a lot, okay, a lot of the ideas weren't Napoleon's himself, but as a person that executed them, Napoleon was um, a great military commander. So in that sense, he, he is one of the great military commanders, but as I was saying, as a sort of statesman and grand strategist, he's extremely poor, which undoes him as a sort of great person, I think, because of the motives behind those wars. Um, and so, yeah, as a statesman and grand strategist, he, he's certainly not one of the great, great um, personalities in history in that sense. Well, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thanks very much for joining me. People can follow you on Twitter, can't they? Yes, that's right. Um, 1815 Fletcher is my um, account. Brilliant. And I gather that you're working on a book at the moment, is that right? Yes, that's right. So I'm um, currently expanding out my PhD thesis. Um, so looking at sort of command and staff systems during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so yeah, I'm just currently adding to that and expanding it out from the original thesis. Um, and yeah, working on that over the winter. Well, when it's done, let me know. And when it's about to be published, we can we can have you back and, and talk through it. Thanks again, Will. This has been great. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Um, really interesting discussion. That was the historian and lecturer Will Fletcher joining me to discuss Napoleon's way of waging war. And as you've just heard, you can follow Will on Twitter at 1815Fletcher. Napoleon Month continues all November here on the Napoleon Assist. I'm planning to bring you a great interview with Professor Beatrice de Graaf on Napoleon diplomacy and state security, a debate between the two sides of the Napoleon's Reputation Camp, featuring Marcus Cribb and Luke Daly Groves, and the first in a series of special features with Josh Proven on Napoleon's Marshals. Those of you on Twitter will have seen that we are also running a vote on Napoleon's greatest victory, and in a series of special episodes, I'll be speaking to experts from across the globe about their picks before throwing it open to a poll on Twitter, so keep an eye out for that. You can get involved with all of the fun and discussions on Twitter. You can find me at ZWhiteHistory and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. And for the first time, The Napoleon Assist has taken to YouTube, where I will be adding video versions of the podcast in the coming weeks, starting with today's episode. So if you're on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe and hit the notification bell to stay up to date with the latest releases. I'll still be releasing the episodes by your favourite podcast channels though, so don't worry. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been Napoleon Month on The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe, stay home where you can. And as always, thank you for listening.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.